Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the um, seventh episode of We Got Planning News for You. I had to think there for a moment to switch number it was because we've done so many now. Um, my name's Charlie Banner. Thank you all very much indeed um, for joining us again. We've got another packed show for you today, and it's great to see so many of you here once again. Um, as always, um, please do continue to provide questions or comments in the Q&A function. Someone's already asked, is the chat function enabled? Um, I think it is, but it's easier to do comments and questions at the Q&A function. As always, we'll try and deal with as many of those as possible, um, probably skipping over references to some of our music tastes. Um, uh, somebody asked, they were praying that I would come on so the music might stop. There's an awful lot of irony you probably aren't aware of in that, uh, in that comment. <laughs> Um, uh, as you know, this is a free show, but can I reiterate our usual encouragement to you to make a donation to the NHS COVID-19 Appeals Just Giving page, clap for our carers, or alternatively a charity of your choice. Um, and now it's time to introduce the panel. So um, can I ask uh, each of the regular panellists to say in turn who you are, where you are, and what you're drinking this evening? Good evening. It's Mary here from Wandsworth, but as you can see via Cornwall. And tonight, in honour of our very special guest, I'm A, flying the flag, and B, I'm drinking Tarquin's Cornish Gin. Cheers. Cheers. Very Mary. good, Mary. Very good. Well, I'm Chris Young, and uh, I am in Hogwarts as usual. I am drinking what is genuinely my favourite beer, which is Proper Job, which also describes how I'm feeling since I've now got some inquiries again. I feel like I've got a proper job. And I too have Cornwall uh, all in the room. I don't know if you can see, but the owl is on a surfboard uh, uh, behind me over here. And there are my sea charts for the owls of Scilly. So uh, fully Cornish here. Uh, and I'm Paul Tucker. Um, I have absolutely no links to Cornwall. Uh, <laughs> and therefore I'm gonna change this to a proper flag yeah, and uh, nice. tell you that uh, I'm a Yorkshireman, proud of it, but I happen to live in Lancashire. Hello, everybody. <laughs> oh, sorry, I forgot. I'm drinking something called Boone Dougal, which is as near to Cornish beer as I can get. It's from Hampshire, as far as I'm concerned. It's <laughs> southern, so it's all the same to me. <laughs> I am Sasha White. I am in London. I am about six doors down from Charlie um, on the and we promised not to run down the corridor and disturb each other during the webinar. We did want Paul Tucker to do a Cornish accent, but we thought it might rival Dick Van Dyke in Chittagong. <laughs> so, so we resisted that. And I want to pay tribute to my Cornish roots because we, of our guest and my lovely St Agnes mother, born and bred in mighty Cornwall. 
Thanks, Sasha. Uh, and indeed, Sasha and I are this week only a few metres, but more than two metres away from each other. Uh, we can't be in the same room, but I could uh, chuck my Spurs hat, which I still have at him at a suitable moment, and see if I can get it to land on his head. Yeah, we'll see it'd, come back, it'd come back four times faster, Charlie, I assure you. <laughs> you around. Yes, the brick inside, probably too. Um, what's been happening this week? Well, first and foremost, happy birthday, happy anniversary to, to Paul and uh, Ursula, 27 years. Chris has been... Uh, busy this week um and it's very pleasing to see that uh he like many barristers are oh, was going to show um image of chris on a site visit but once again sasha has perhaps wisely disabled screen show but chris chris been out on a site visit um and uh hopefully we'll we'll get a picture of, of him on a suitably socially separated site visit soon uh, looking a little bit like an album cover um and wearing speedos but thankfully not budgie, budgie smoke <laughs> and i'm wearing my speedos right now we don't we don't need to see them chris <laughs> stay seated chris please <laughs> we also have a they're shorts guest. paul they're shorts <laughs> we will believe you we have an extremely special guest today uh, in the form of lord matthew taylor uh, matthew uh, hello and welcome thank Hi. you so much joining us. Uh, Matthew is, as everyone will know, uh, the author of numerous reports into the planning system, a long-term champion of garden communities, which is going to be one of our special topics today, and part of the team led the original MPPF and PPG. As usual, our, our guest interview with Matthew is in the second half of the show, but before we get to that, Matthew, I'm, I'm sure you'll have uh, quite a lot to say about our PINS decision of the week, uh, Inspector Clue's findings in relation to the North Essex Authority's local plan part one which proposed three garden communities, two of which he found unsound, um, and also on our special topic regarding garden communities. Um, so without further ado... Um, oh, wait, Charlie, but there is further ado, I'm afraid, and you, you've been very modest. We've got to admit to everyone that you've had a significant milestone this week, and actually you're now joined some of us in the post-40 camp. So I wanted to wish you a happy oh. birthday. Yes, thank you. Well, given that today, given that today is the is the, uh, the well the afternoon after the night before my birthday, I'm drinking ghost shit because that's how I feel. Anyway, now our first topic this week is court case of the week, um, uh, and we've chosen um, Client Earth Judicial Review Challenge of the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy um, to plant a DCO for uh, an extension to the Drax Power Station near Selby, North Yorkshire, for two gasifier generating units, presumably to keep uh, Paul's friends and family warm in the middle of the week, winter, given its location. Um, and I'm just going to kick off with this. Um, judgment was given a few days ago by Mr Justice Holgate, uh, who rejected the judicial review challenge on all nine grounds. And there's a number of interesting features. Um, the first of which is that the case was wholly digital. So uh, it was a three-day remote hearing followed by a remote hand down of judgment. Probably the most complex planning case to follow this fully remote procedure to date. There were nine grounds of claim, a 54-page judgment. That's how thick it is. 262 paragraphs, a, a classic uh, Mr Justice Holgate tour de force in a case of considerable public interest and importance and um, an illustrative of the fact that during this COVID crisis, it can be done this way. Um, the context is that the PINs examining panel uh, re recommended refusal of the application. The Secretary of State disagreed. The main issue concerned the interpretation of the overarching national policy statement on energy and the NPS for fossil fuel uh, infrastructure. Um, the inspectors held that whilst the NPS has supported a, a need in general for 
additional energy infrastructure. Drax hadn't demonstrated that their particular development itself met identified need. Um, and the Secretary of State didn't agree with that approach. Um, the Secretary of State's view was that the MPS has assumed a general need for fossil fuel generation and uh, that general need meant that it wasn't necessary for a particular applicant to propose a specific project need for their scheme. In other words, the MPS uh, meant that need was taken as red and didn't need to be proved. Um, Mr Justice Holgate held firstly this was a question of interpretation of the policy so unlike some cases where it's possible to hide behind planning judgment um, and say this is all a matter of Wensbury reasonableness this was a case where the judge felt it was a, a valid issue to be considered by the court but having considered it he thought the Secretary of State got it bang on uh, correct uh, in his view the MPS assumed need left it to the market to deliver that need for this kind of infrastructure without the need having to be assessed quantitatively for any individual application um, and he went on to say that the panel's comment that um, needs should be reassessed from time to time following the NPS, um, he felt that was illegitimate as it's a matter for the government to review the NPS to see whether the identification of need was up to date rather than for um, individual decisions to effectively review the NPS by the back door. So until such time as the NPS is reviewed, need is taken as a given. And he went on to held also a separate but related point that, um, that the NPSs were to be read as providing that greenhouse gas emissions from this kind of project weren't a reason for refusing a DCO. He, he read the, the NPS as providing that that was a matter for other regimes and he thought that was perfectly legally fine for an NPS to, to take that approach. So in terms of my observations on this, first it's a pretty significant judgment in the context of nationally significant energy infrastructure projects of which uh, there are uh, many. Uh, it highlights more generally both in relation to this kind of project and all NSIPs the fundamental role that MPSs play in the determination of DCO decisions and how by the time of the DCO stage some if not many of the key arguments have already been dealt with. So those objecting to a, a uh, national significant infrastructure project need to be alive the fact that they may well need to look at and engage with the the process leading to the NPS because by that stage the past may be sold on really important arguments and it's perhaps no surprise therefore there's been a recent flurry in challenges to the NPS as the airports one got that one in again before Paul uh, asked who was in that case the airports NPS the uh, current judicial reviews the failure to review the energy NPSs and I think it's likely that we're going to see a, a greater focus on that earlier stage um, and um, also it's notable for Mr Justice Holgate rejecting the proposition that there's a heightened duty to give reasons when the Secretary of State disagrees with an inspector. Um, so those, those are my thoughts. Um, Sasha, you've got some observations on this one too, haven't you? I do, Charlie. Before I give them, I just want to talk about our esteemed colleague, Greg Jones's Nine Grands, because one of our panellists appeared uh, against me, Mr Paul Tucker QC. We mm. appeared together in the Court of Appeal. And I can see the smile appearing because he'll remember this story. Mr. Tucker had 13 grounds and he started off about to speak, as we all do, with our extensive notes. And the very esteemed bench of Lord Justice Calmworth and Lord Justice Sullivan said, Lord Justice Calmworth looked at Paul as he sat down and said, oh, Mr. Tucker, we've looked at your grounds and, Mr. and Lord Justice Sullivan and I have come to the view that probably we want to hear from you on your ground number one alone. <laughs> and Paul, one of the great recoveries in modern advocacy, held his nerve, kept going against that very clear steer from such a powerful bench. So I just on Paul's anniversary, I can see what Ursula sees in you, cool under pressure, resilient and kept on going in the face of an almighty 
battle. So congratulations <laughs> to you. Yeah, and, and still lost, Sasha. <laughs> well, in that case, I always remark because what the leading, it's about the only time that one of the leading proponents of the grounds was Lanky, the Lancashire cricket mascot who'd barred Paul's clients from entering the relevant committee meeting. Ground one, a large furry animal barred my barred the claimant from appearing and entering the uh, committee one of the most unique grounds in legal history but uh, what i want to say about this i mean i do think in the micro you've summarized very well in the macro it does raise the question of how difficult it is to challenge dcos because um this has been looked at and i think 70 roughly 70 dcos have been granted in their lifetime since they became part of a, a mechanism for granting consents of this nature. 10 have been challenged and all but one has succeeded. So think about that. The courts have intervened in one of 70. So it just shows really, it's incredibly difficult to challenge in law that the, the mechanism of DCO. And it begs the question, frankly, from the proponents of them, why, why they're not used more widely in view of that level of success. So I just wanted to flag up and I also thought, and I do want to say to Mr. Justice Holgate, this is an exemplar of a decision and a judgment. If anyone doubts the intellectual rigour of the High Court, they need to read this decision. Mm -hmm. Greg might not agree with me, but I would certainly sure Andrew Tate and James Strawn would. But that's that's my comment about it. The DCO. Thanks, Ashley. And we might come back to that issue about the wider use of the DCO process when we come to talk about um, Garn communities in a few moments' time. Uh, but before we do that, we've got the um, key pins decision of the week um, which on the theme of garden communities um, relates to um, the North Essex Authority's shared local plan and Chris you're going to introduce this item. Yes I am and um, it's the North Essex Authority's shared strategic section one plan which I can tell you is not easy to say after three proper jobs. Okay. Uh, the three authorities concerned are Braintree District Council, Colchester Borough Council and Tendry District Council, all in Essex. They proposed three um, uh, plans, but with an identical section one, which was the strategic part. And the eye-catching part of these plans is they proposed three new settlements as garden communities with the ambition of delivering, wait for it, up to 43,000 new homes. Now, each one of these was a cross-boundary proposal. If you look at the authorities across North Essex, you've got Tendrick on the east, then Colchester in the middle, then Bain Braintree, and next to them is Uttlesford, which are also feature in this story, uh, and they've recently abandoned their own plan earlier this year. The new settlements were located on the boundary of the three authorities. We have the Tendring colchester border garden community uh, which made it through. The Colchester Braintree borders one that didn't and the west of Braintree garden community that didn't. They're all backed by the government having been selected through the garden communities competition. The inspector was Roger Clues who is a very experienced local plan inspector and uh, in my view the man with the second best hair in planning right now. Third <laughs> Chris surely. Um, and uh, he uh, was um i've appeared before him promoting a plan for three authorities myself in south worcestershire uh, he didn't accept the housing numbers first of all until they got a more realistic figure and um, also in the birmingham plan uh, he did allow that plan through but he said uh, they had to um 
deal with the 38,000 shortfall uh, within three years or it was coming home to Birmingham. So vastly experienced, a very robust inspector who understands the system like the back of his hand. The examination process had already been going on for a long time and he produced his report 58 pages long. He questioned the deliverability of these garden villages, which raises a fundamental issue about the whole project and we're going to come on to with Matthew. He wrote to the council in June 2018, setting out his concerns then. He allowed the council to suspend the examination process until January of this year, therefore giving them plenty of time to improve their evidence. And they're obviously greatly assisted by the developers. But he found on the evidence uh, that he, he wasn't satisfied with two of the three garden villages. He found the tendering Colchester border one sound, but he's asked that the other two be removed, otherwise he'll find the, uh, the section one plan unsound. The main issue briefly is financial viability. The plans are examined under MPPF1, the 2012 version and paragraph 173 of that, uh, everybody knows, uh, requires landowners to receive a competitive uh, return for the land. And the problem is it's devilishly difficult to know what the appropriate land value should be. I know Matthew's got views about how we should approach that issue. But from paragraph 201 in his huge, uh, huge report, he, um, he sets out that generally participants had clustered around the idea of a price of around £100,000 per acre being the minimum for a competitive return to the landowner. And although the evidence was limited on that, that seemed to be indicative of current market conditions. He felt that would be sufficient for landowners within the garden community to sell because obviously not all of them had been signed up. Um, but whilst uh, he wasn't entirely clear what the correct figure would be, he felt a land price below 50,000 an acre, half that figure, appears um, unlikely to be sufficient. So that was the threshold in effect that he set. And on that basis, without going through it, uh, all the detail, he found that only one of them could achieve that because it required a 40% contingency into the exercise because of the stage we're at and the uncertainty and the infrastructure so um, that 40% contingency, if that becomes widely adopted, that's a huge inflation on the costs associated with these proposals. Um, yet the, the one that got through was able to achieve that. Um, there's been lots of reaction to this. The councils are obviously disappointed. Um, I'm trying to keep within a time slot, but it's quite clear that the viability was absolutely central to this issue. And people, including the council leaders, are questioning whether the plan proposal can really address this because not a great deal of the housing required for the plan period was actually in these communities. They're much more ambitious, much more long-term, but um, just on that basis, he's found two of them unsound. Mary, what do you think? Um, I want to focus on the sustainability uh, appraisal process um, because in his earlier June 2018 letter, he had given the councils a uh, a clear steer as to what he thought was the inadequacies of their approach to the sustainability appraisal. And he questioned in particular the objectivity of the work that Essex County Council had done. And so independent external consultants were uh, deployed and they looked at alternative strategic sites that could form part of the uh, plan's spatial strategy and they also looked at alternative spatial strategies. Um, but the exercise uh, that they had to do was really limited in the sense that um, 
This was not a joint local plan between three authorities looking at what should happen across the whole of the spatial area of these three. So the exercise was more confined because it was really focusing simply on these three garden communities. And he found that in looking at reasonable alternatives, it was okay simply to focus on sites that could deliver 2,000 or more. Um, uh, and um, he ultimately gave the sustainability appraisal a green light. The other thing I just want to draw out is that it seemed to me he took a quite different approach to the inspectors in Uttlesford on the question of whether the sustainability was appropriate in the way it dealt with heritage. Um, in, the, in, in the case of uh, the three Essex authorities, they took a proximity-based approach to considering the effect of the uh, potential communities on designated heritage assets. So they simply said, is there 5% or more of each site lying within a 500 meter distance of a designated heritage asset? Um, and the answer, in fact, in each case was yes. And so they said, well, there would be a significant negative effect um, it, with uncertainty. Mm. Historic England said, no, 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 you need to do uh, uh, an historic impact assessment to inform your SA. Um, and the inspector basically said, no, I don't think you do, because all this plan is doing is identifying three very broad locations. And it will be for separate development plan documents to come along and identify precisely where in those broad locations the, the garden communities should actually be. And so therefore, this very limited proximity-based approach he thought was right. Whereas in Uttlesford, you will recall, one of the reasons the garden, the three garden villages promoted by one authority went down was because there they had done more work. They had actually done a heritage impact assessment of each of their garden um, communities, although they, it was done independently and after the sustainability appraisal. And they still got kicked by the inspectors because it was said that the HIA demonstrated that there would be negative effects on designated historic um, assets. So quite honestly, I, I sort of stand back and think, well, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to do the HIA or are you not? Because in both cases, the councils were just simply identifying broad locations, anticipating a subsequent development plan document. And yet the inspectors have approached it quite differently. Not, I think that inconsistency is not helpful for any of us. Mm, interesting how that's resolved um, it, it going forward. Uh, th thanks for that, Mary. Um, next up, we've got um, uh, our special topic for this week, garden communities, um, because this isn't by any means the first um, unsuccessful garden community local plan um, that we discussed on this show. So we thought we'd uh, address the issue of why are so many failing at the local plan stage and what can be done about it? What's the solution? And um, Paul, you're going to um, kick off this topic. Yeah, I'm just going to say a few things, then hand over to Mary, who's going to ask uh, Matthew one or two uh, difficult questions. Um, we, we've talked about unsuccessful garden communities. Can I just um, remind remind everybody uh, who's uh, watching the show that we have a history of 120 years of very successful garden communities. Mm -hmm. We have extraordinary ones like uh, Saltair and Port Sunlight, not a million miles away from me. We have Stevenage, Milton Keynes, 
And then as I look out of my window, I see the remnants of the central Langs Newtown, also known as Preston Chorley and South Ribble, um, as well as the delights of Skelmersdale. Um, and I do mean delights of Skelmersdale. I pass it and wave as I, I drive to other parts of the Northwest. Um, but there have been immensely successful uh, garden communities over the last century or so that have delivered and have created viable, sustainable communities. But those, by and large, have been in the context of a very different development plan system, have been at a time when we built council estates, at a time when infrastructure wasn't primarily reliant upon the private sector, and at a time when we had regional planning. So we've not only got the most favourable context for the promotion of garden communities at the moment, but I suspect we have the most unfavourable, sorry, the most favourable policy context, but the most unfavourable practical uh, context for the promotion of garden communities. And yet, there is a headroom in terms of the private sector and government to promote them. So there are a series of, of issues which arise in terms of how we do it now and whether or not our current system is fit for purpose. Should we abandon the whole idea following things such as uh, North Essex? Should we recognise there's a need, a need for the state to fund and pump prime them? Should we build council houses again? Um, should we bring in new town corporations once again? Should we change the soundness test to test of MPPF? Um, could the surviving Essex garden, garden community provide the answer? But most fundamentally, should we be reviewing our development plan, our regional planning system, or our non-regional planning system in order to be able to promote these? And I'm looking forward to hearing Mary ask those questions and elicit the answers from Matthew. My own kind of, I can't help but wonder uh, from my own perspective of, of some of these cases is um, that the more ambitious and potentially beneficial a proposal, and this applies to garden communities and other things too, the, the greater the risk there often is in them, the risk that they may not succeed, um, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. Uh, and is the policy and decision making framework currently available capable of accommodating that level of risk? Uh, maybe that's something that uh, uh, Mary and Matthew you'll address. Uh, over to you Mary um, to start the interview with Matthew. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening Matthew. I've got six questions I would like to ask you before I hand you over to the others. The first question I'd like is, uh, to ask you is this, is the government's plan-led system fit for promoting whole new garden communities as opposed to sort of incremental expansions I think what we have to start with is remembering what the Garden Communities Programme uh, was fundamentally about, which was that the planning system as is had proved itself unfit to deliver the number of homes that we needed. So we had seen over a very long period of time insufficient homes. And my view was that uh, over the years, what had happened was an original system that had three legs to the stool urban renewal, urban extension, and new supplements. It had the new supplement leg taken away from it. And that without that, uh, the concentration on redevelopment and urban extension had actually put uh, enormous pressure politically because people were revolting against what was happening at the end of their garden, frankly. Uh, and because people could identify the next sequential site, land values for those uh, urban extensions have made it impossible to deliver quality, bluntly. So the solution, just to add that leg back in and allow communities to choose new settlements, if that's what they preferred, uh, was the solution. It's been a very popular one. We've seen huge numbers being brought forward. We've seen local authorities reacting in a way that I hope they would, and the government hoped they would, and, and many of these, in the, obviously, in the Garden Religion Town programme, and many more in process. Then the question is, well, we 
attempted to unlock this opportunity, it's clearly been seized by the people who represent people, and now we're seeing it blocked, if you like, by the system, by the mm. examination, by the inspectorate. Two questions there. One is, have we got a problem? I think this is true in the local authorities, perhaps the inspectorate as well. We've got a generation of people brought up to be highly skeptical about new supplements because they were told they were a bad idea and unsustainable. But also, is the examination system really designed for very large scale uh, schemes that will take many, many years to deliver? And I think the conclusion, if we take Richard Drew's examination, uh, at least would be no, because I think the bars have been set here at hurdle rates that would be impossible for frankly any major scheme to get through. Well, that sort of leads on to my second question, because I mean, uh, uh, is it realistic to think that um, mm. planning authorities have access to the skill set and the resources that are required to plan uh, a new garden community? Uh, is that really the issue, or is the issue really the difficulty of having to prove the viability of such schemes at a local plan examination, particularly if they have to rely upon public funds and infrastructure. Um, is it? I, I think um, there are bound to be skill shortages, of course, and we've not got a generation of planners who've done this. There's very few that have created new settlements, uh, and I spend a lot of time going around local authorities as well as working with promoters and landowners to help them through that thinking process uh, and I have to say one shouldn't be overly pessimistic we're getting garden communities through as well as we're getting uh, some uh, blocked and, uh, and, and getting into difficulties so it's not that it can never happen but when I go in I talk about these being promoted as a partnership between the long-term interest on the private sector side that could be the landowners, it can be an investor in place, it can be a placemaker, working in partnership with the local authorities. So if you take the Carclays Garden Village, originally an eco-town down outside St. Orsel, I chair the strategic partnership that puts together Homes England, the local authority and the private sector in the same room. And I don't believe they work in any other form. I'm always sceptical of schemes that uh, come forward with multiple landowners who haven't got any agreement they're, where they're reliant on uh, selling up parcels of land and people have really not got into their heads that this is an opportunity for people holding land at agricultural value to make greatly increased value in place but it's much more likely to happen as a long-term project where you've got either a single landowner or it's become effectively a single landowner working in partnership with the, with the local authority and then finally not predicating it on massive infrastructure investment. Um, I think all of those that have been predicated on huge infrastructure investment have found it difficult. Mm -hmm. So why are you doing that? That's not what the Garden Village programme said. That's not what the scheme that I put forward. There will be circumstances where that should happen. But if that's going to happen, I think the government need to step up to the mark in, whether it's using the New Towns Act, making upfront uh, promises or investment, or changing the planning system and saying that these very long-term schemes are about taking a decision in principle to do something and we will test it on your delivery but of course you can't expect that far in advance to test it on viability when it will depend on government funding decisions for example that are yet to be taken. 
So mm. would you agree, therefore, that the viability of garden uh, communities needs to be approached in a different way to the viability of other sites? Depends on the community. So I'm working with many schemes where they've understood what the garden principles, garden community principles are, that you're creating an internalization of place, that it's a long-term investment play, that you need to uh, be very clear about your delivery structure. And by and large, they need to be consuming their own smoke in terms of not just the impacts on the surrounding community, but actually their ability to fund themselves. Many of them have understood that and then work in partnership with the council to deliver it. But beyond that, yeah, no, we need to make sure, if we're going to do what North Essex has attempted to do, you need to go beyond it. And we know that. In fact, the inspector referred it to in his report. There was talk of using the New Towns Act here. Government, I understand, was up to using the New Towns Act. Well, that immediately raises some questions about, were we getting this back to front? Should it be much clearer right from the word go how this was going to be taken uh, forward? Uh, but having said all of that, I think they had the right intentions. They took a very big call on uh, the long-term view. They were willing as elected members to take on a very, very active campaign against. And I think they'll be devastated by this um, because certainly one of them, actually Richard earlier in his report, says that 50,000 an acre is viable. Well, I'm working on schemes that are, that are looking at that sort of, a, of number because otherwise the land is not developable. It's agricultural land. This is not edge of town where you hold on for later money. So in his own report, I think he set a bar with the 40% contingency uh, with, with the land values and so on that make it very difficult to deliver any major scheme, not just garden villages and, and towns. I think, I think this, this throws in doubt anything other than the small scale sequential development of place, which is the very thing that policy has been trying to move us away from. Well, what more can landowners and promoters do, do you think, at this stage in order to uh, demonstrate delivery? So uh, take us back to Ucclesford. And uh, for those who read that review, one of the things that was remarkable was that you had a scheme that was being promoted with local authority support, but where there were multiple landowners. And at examination, the landowners who had secured a local authority supporting a new supplement there then fell out with the local authority about the delivery structure. And the delivery structure, of course, was all about guaranteeing the quality of place and meeting the Garden Village government. Well, they didn't do very well out of that. But the first thing, when I talk, and I, I do a lot of work with landowners and promoters, the first thing I say to them is you need to understand this is not an urban extension on land that would otherwise be developed. It is all about a placemaking piece it's a long-term investment in place so you've got to accept that that has implications for land value if you like the things that you're going to need to put in place the road the transport infrastructure the community the mixed community the school all of that is the price of the permission to build thousands of homes somewhere that otherwise there would never be development and that has to reset the land values and that's part of the answer to richard drew you can't take a normal land value position, but neither can the promoters, and they need to understand that and need to say so the landowners, and perhaps most of all the land agents need to be clear about that in the advice they're giving. So I do see that going wrong. Yes. And secondly, it has to be a full partnership with the local authority. But actually, ironically, North Essex may be very favourable to those landowners and promoters who are willing to do all of that, because if you can offer in effect we accept these land values 
we accept what needs to be done. Here's our offer in placemaking and how we will do that. Then I think local authorities will be able to meet the tests uh, that are here. What's much more difficult, but then I've always advised against it, is a local authority deciding we're going to build it here without having got the commitments of the landowners. Because as soon as they do that, and we've seen a number of local authorities doing this around the country, as soon as you publish something that says we're looking to this area, of course people will come in and take options out. Of course the landowners will be advised for much higher values mm. uh, than, than, than actually a garden community can generate. But in doing so, I think this makes very clear that those landowners need to think twice because they will lose everything if they ask for too much. Thank you. Right, I'm going to ask you one last question before I open this up. Are, are DCOs the answer to these failing examinations? Okay, so, so far I've said, here's what the policy was intended to do, and we've, we have got a problem uh, with this uh, conclusion and with these tests. Um, uh, I think that the issue here is probably not to go for DCOs, certainly not, I think people are using it as a shorthand for reform really, because I think it would be a nightmare decision to say, well, we're going to take this international hands. If you started parceling out where these things are to go nationally, the decision was no longer a local promotion and supported by a local community, you'd run into the problem we've seen previously with new supplements in the last 20 odd years, the Ecotown programme, where it looked like it was being dictated centrally and it fell apart. You'd have all the problems of Heathrow, you'd have all the problems of HS2. So they have to be locally generated and, and through local leadership. But where that happens, my view is we should go back to the roots of local planning. But the local plan is the long-term vision of place. It's not about have you got the very best solution? You've got your local choice on this. It's not about can you detail exactly how this will be funded and how many homes this year. It will be we want to grow in Cornwall, for example, with a set of new communities rather than surround every historic town and village with new estates. That's, that's a fundamental decision that they should be allowed to take in the local plan. Describe where that will be. Of course they have to show how that will be delivered, but not at a level of this kind of test. Um, this, is, this is a test for, for another time and another place. Where their feet should be held to the fire is on delivery, which is why some years ago I proposed the delivery test. The irony was we got the delivery test and kept the five-year supply. Well, the five-year supply was meant to go. It was meant to be create your vision, show us what you're going to do, of course have short-term supply, but beyond that, this is about vision of placemaking, but we will then hold your feet to the fire on delivery. And, and I think that that fundamental reform would make all the difference. We tried to push that in MPPF2. The words were there, particularly footnote 35. That was all trying to do that. The changes, read the changes between the two. But clearly we need to go further. We do have to remember that the examinations we've been talking about were examined under MPPF 2012, the first version. Now I've hogged you. And, and if, I, if I may, I know, I think possibly should have tried, gone back two steps to go forward on MPPF2. I'm going to hand you over to Paul so he can ask ask his question Paul yeah I, I'm, I'm going to ask my question before I do just to prove that we're on a live show and the question has just been <laughs> asked by Dave Proudlove um, which strikes me as being really compelling question which is 
all your points really lead to shouldn't we really be reforming the, the 1961 Land Compensation Act or rather the structure by which a developer can acquire land on a back-to-back -back agreement with the authority make life easy for them it's, um, now that's the first question I'm going to do it like we do on the uh, the, the Covid briefings I'm going to ask you too Matthew if that's okay <laughs> my, my real question relates to the New Towns Act which is when I started off I started off dealing with the remnants of the Central Lanks New Town and the Warrington uh, New Town and the Section 9 consent and the arguments in relation to that and the whole thing about the New Town Corporation was it was all about delivery the whole structure of the act was about delivery once the corporation's been set up why on earth aren't we promoting Newtown Act style solutions um, to the promotion of garden communities? Why haven't those been at the forefront of, of our um, promotion of them thus far? Well, how ironic that what the government thought might be the first new town is the one we're discussing today and has just not got there. So, uh, or at least the first use of the New Towns Act. So, uh, when I wrote the Garden Village Report, I talked about modernising the New Towns Act and using that. Uh, we should remember that, for example, in Milton Keynes, it wasn't that it was the land was acquired by CPO, with a couple of tiny exceptions. It was done by treaty, but it was done in the knowledge that the value was set by <coughs> that ability to acquire land and existing views, not taking into account the, the new town uh, proposal. And that allowed land to be acquired, it allowed the assembly of the site. And landowners came in with that on, uh, through negotiation with the treaty and didn't do too badly out of that at all uh, themselves. That New Towns Act modernisation I proposed did take place. Uh, I was able, working with government, to make amendments to the Act. So the opportunity is there in a way that it wasn't. And actually, some landowners and authorities have understood that that threat, if you like, was there around values and I think it's helped with some of the discussions about how things might happen. But we don't have a government that is inclined to that kind of state intervention, or at least we didn't pre-Boris and he's been a little distracted recently, so we'll see what happens next. But uh, but they even, even, even before that, a Conservative government passed those changes. So that is there as a potential tool, but it doesn't need to happen if you've got not just a willing landowner to sell at the right price, but even if you've got landowners coming forward who are willing to really invest in place. Now, maybe the original landowner, it may be a, a new one, uh, an investor in place, but someone who will carry the land through. And I think that is a fundamental necessity to create the kind of places I'm talking about. So either a private sector investor in place, the original landowner or a new, who is willing to take a long-term return by creating pace and value through great placemaking. Uh, or local authorities need to acquire the land for it. I was challenged by um, a, a, a planner from Barcelona. I did a presentation to CPRE in Wessex uh, where they, they were very supportive of this, incidentally. CPRE uh, have acknowledged in, in many places the value of taking this approach. Um, and that planner said, I don't understand why you are in your local plans allocating places to create new communities without acquiring the land to do it. Why are you losing control at that point? You're taking this huge political decision to turn fields into a new place, not on the edge of town where it carries existing value, but in the middle of nowhere where you can create value only by virtue of government decision. Why wouldn't you acquire the land at that point? Just as why do Homes England dispose of places where they could curate, not directly developing, but by commissioning the curation of place. I like um, uh, uh, 
at, um, at the uh, the DIO have um, sold in many places, but in some places they've retained the land ownership whilst creating place. And actually, I think that was a great thing for for the MOD to have done because it allows that creation and curation of place to take place without the the land transfer happening early on, which which right. often makes it impossible to afford. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.